Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, the Greek word there is magos, that'll become important later on, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. King Herod, you need to know, was uh, a paranoid maniac. Uh, any talk about a king is going is to raise his ire. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, Okay, these are the, the, the leaders of Judaism of the day. He asked them where the Christ was to be born, and they said, in Bethlehem in Judea. For this is what the prophet has written. And now they quote Micah. Written 500 years before Christ was born, the prophet specifies where the Messiah will be born. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. Clearly Herod sees that while the religious leaders know where Christ will be born, they're not in on the loop on this one. The Magi have got the important information. So Herod gets a private audience with the Magi. With the Magi. And he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Right. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream, God warned them in a dream. God clearly is watching out for these folks. He warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. They returned to their country by another route. Let's talk to God again. Father, make this word come alive. Some of us have heard this a hundred times. I pray, God, that you'd clear away the fog and help us to hear it for the first time. And I pray, God, that the full power of this word would be felt by us and that it would shake us. God, disturb us with this profound story. Move us out of our comfort zone. Get us out of our unsettledness. Jolt us out of our apathy. Waken us out of our lethargy. Set us on fire, God. To follow you and to do your work in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have uh, frequently said this in Christmas messages, that we tend to tidy up the Christmas story. Our culture tends to tidy up. Christendom tends to tidy it up. Um, we, we turn a story that in the original context would have been shocking, if not horrifying, uh, disturbing, and we make it into a story that is cute, that is quaint, that is sweet, quiet, and serene, that rather than disturbs us, reaffirms us, and makes us a little more comfortable in our peace serenity. We take a story of a, of a, a, a young teenager who was not yet married to her husband. They were betrothed, but it, it wasn't a full marriage. They did not have sexual relationships. She conceives. That's scandalous. Uh, she goes to the inn. There's no room in the inn. She and her fiancé go out into a barn, a smelly barn, a manure-filled barn, an overcrowded barn, a stench-filled barn, and there in some corner of the barn, they go through the birthing process. This is how God comes into the world, and we somehow manage to take that story, 
uh, and turn it into a quaint, sweet, nice, cute, pretty Christmas story that we think about once a year. And one of the areas that we, t- we also tend to tidy up, I now realize, is this whole thing about the three magi, the three wise men. And I want us to, like Paul Harvey says, get the rest of the story. Uh, the rest of the, the, the maybe an aspect of the Christmas story you didn't know about. I want to dispel a couple of myths about these three magi, these three wise men. First of all, the Bible doesn't say there was three of them. There was probably more than that because they tended to travel in caravans. doesn't say there were three. When it says that they gave gold, incense, and myrrh, it didn't say, say that each one gave one gift. It says they just opened their treasures, and these are the kinds of things that they gave. They offered up as a sacrifice in worship to the Christ child. Uh, it doesn't say that there were kings. Now, that's part of the tradition that arose later on. We three kings of Orient are having gifts. We travel so far. Some would seating, expert seating. Uh, how, how the lyrics go? I don't know. But, but uh, uh, that's, that's part of the tradition. Because, you know, it's like we do with the rest of the Christmas story. Here's what we think ought to have happened, and so we make that into what happened, but it's not what happened. Uh, we, we, we expect that it, surely Christ deserved to have kings visit him, and so we turn the magi into kings, but there's a word for kings in Greek, and it's not magos. It means something totally different. In fact, according to the tradition, these three kings have names. Casper, Bethazar, Bethazar, and Melchior. And so we name them. In fact, you can, you can visit their bones in certain uh, churches in Eastern Europe. But none of that is scripturally based. That's just tradition that arose. They weren't kings, they weren't three, they also weren't there at the manger scene. Sorry to blow apart uh, manger scenes that you have already set up in your house. But it, it says here, it says here that they, that they visited uh, Mary and Joseph in the house. Uh, they got there about one to two years after the birth took place. Christ was a toddler at this point. They had a house and, and the, the, uh, the three magi visited the house. So all the scenes about the three kings sitting down with the shepherds worshiping the Christ child, uh, they're wrong. They're unbiblical. They're antichrist. I rebuke them. No. They're, they're fine. They're symbolic. But uh, I'm not trying to, you know, run a campaign here. I'm just saying it's not accurate. Nor were they wise men. Now, they're not what we today would call wise men. Some translations call them wise men, but I think that's because what they really were is offensive to us, and it's not offensive to call them wise men. Surely Christ deserved wise men to visit him. But see, the word magi doesn't mean that. We know what the word magi means. It, 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 it's not a, a disputed word. It refers to a magician. A magician, a sorcerer, a person who's involved in occult divination. Uh, they specialized in astronomy. Astrology, I should say, reading the stars. Um, they came, uh, we're dealing here with three pagan astrologers. They came from Persia, most scholars believe. And see, well, what disturbs us about this is that, that uh, the Bible uniformly is against astrology. It's uniformly against divination. It's against psychic reading. It's against that horoscope stuff. You're dabbling in the occult there. It's dangerous stuff. God says don't try to know stuff you're not given to know. And there's some people here who maybe need to know that because psychic readings and that kind of nonsense are pretty popular in our culture. The Bible's uniformly against this. In fact, the two other places where Magi are referred to in the New Testament are both very negative. In Acts chapter 8, uh, Simon the sorcerer, the word there is magos. He uh, Peter confronts Simon the sorcerer, and he's one of the magi. Uh, another place in Acts 13, they confront a man named Bar-Jesus. He was a sorcerer involved in magic and divination, astrology and whatnot, and Paul and Barnabas have to confront them. It's a negative term, which is why 
it's kind of offensive to think that God would use a star, which is part of their astrology, to bring these three pagan astrologers to the Christ child. It's a little bit disturbing. The Bible's uniformly against this. Now, what's even more disturbing is that these three magi came from Persia. They were part of the royal court. Uh, most courts in those days used diviners uh, for ki that kings would consult when they're trying to decide what they're going to do. Uh, we know that the Magi, we know from Herodotus, that the Magi uh, were uh, the Medes who were in Persia. They migrated there from northern Iran, and they, become the, they became the priestly class in Persia, just like the Levites were the priestly caste among the Hebrews. They were part of the royal court. They were the ones that the king would consult when they're going to make a decision. Tell me what does the future hold? Read the stars, do the tea leaves, you know, whatever. Or where there was sickness, they would call on magic to bring about sickness. That's who the magi were, the part of the royal court. What's offensive is that the Persian Empire, as some of you know from reading the Old Testament, has a long history of hostility with Israel. They're, they're part of the, the, the Babylonian Empire, and there's constant conflict between Israel and the Babylonians. And there was a period of time where the Babylonians actually conquered the Israelites and made slaves out of them. You read about this in the book of Daniel. Daniel, a Jewish boy, was able to interpret a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and the other magi weren't able to do that. So Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the chief of the magi which really ticked off the other magi because they thought it was exclusively for Medes and Daniel wasn't a Mede. So they conspired to kill him and that's how Daniel got thrown in the lion's den. It didn't work, of course, God delivered him, but that's the history there. So God is using these pagan astrologers uh, from a pagan hostile nation to come to the Christ child. An interesting question is this. How did these magi, these astrologers, know that Christ was being born? And why would they make this journey to go see him? The journey from Persia to Bethlehem would have been uh, about 1,000 to 1,200 miles, depending on where the magi were located within the Babylonian, Babylonian Empire. It would have taken six, month, six to nine months' journey through a desert. They would have had to bring all their provisions from them. What could have inspired these pagan astrologers to leave their royal court to go on a nine-month journey one way, a nine-month journey back, leave that all in order to follow a star to find this king who was born? And the answer is we have no idea. God clearly was in it, but there's a couple of other things that are interesting to note just in terms of information. We know from two pagan historians of, of the time, Suetonius and Tacitus, that there was throughout the world especially in the Roman Empire and in areas that were touched by the Roman Empire, there was a buzz about, about a king going to be born. Pagans were thinking this. A new age was coming, uh, and it was the astrologers and the soothsayers uh, who were saying this kind of stuff. There was an, an expectation everywhere that, that we're in a different kind of an era. Something's happening here. Now, how they knew that is an interesting question. It may be that they're dabbling in the occult and there's a buzz going on in the spiritual world about a coming king and they're, 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 they're getting little pieces of information from that. Who knows? But the buzz was in the air. Uh, the magi types were, were, were looking for a king. We also know that the, one of the main things that the, the magi specialized in was astrology. Astrology, which in the ancient world was astronomy. They had very accurate charts of how the stars moved. They looked at the stars and they invested all the movements of the stars and the configurations of the stars with a lot of meaning. We do know, and I'll speak a little bit more about this on uh, the Christmas Eve service, that between 7 B.C. and 2 A.D., there were some very funky things going on in the heavenlies. 
Uh, the Chinese report seeing it. The Babylonians report seeing it. Some unusual stellar occurrences. And it could have been that with this buzz in the air as they're looking up in the sky, some funky things going on in the sky, they invest that with the meaning of this new king coming. That might have something to do with it. It's also possible, in fact, I think likely, that, they, that these... Uh, 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 Magi had Old Testament old prophecies. We know that they collected prophecies from all over the ancient world. Uh, they were very eclectic. They, they, would, they would see the spirit world operating wherever they could get their hands on it. Now, there's one prophecy in particular that the Magi might have known about. I think it's likely they knew, knew about uh, and used to find where Christ was born. It comes out of Numbers chapter 24. And here there's a, uh, a prophet of sorts called Balaam who says this. He's speaking over Israel at this point. He prophesies. He says, I see him. He doesn't say who he sees. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, it's clear in the original text, this is spoken, by the way, a thousand years, more than a thousand years before Christ comes on the scene. Uh, it's clear in the original text that the star refers to the person who's going to rise out of uh, Jacob and rule. But many rabbis believed, and seems to be a kind of widespread interpretation, that the star had a dual reference, both to the person who'd be coming out of Jacob, but also to some astronomical signal that this Messiah would be born. And it's possible that the Magi had this, and so they were looking for a particular star. Now, what, what makes the story even a little bit odder is this. If you look at the original prophecy in Numbers 24, this Balaam, who gave this prophecy, was not a prophet of God. He was one of the many prophets for hire they had back in the ancient world. He was a sorcerer of sorts. He would consult the spirit world on behalf of kings. Uh, he was hired by a pagan king, Balak, king of the Moabites. And Israel is starting to come to Moab, and so this king hires Balaam to stand on a mountain and curse Israel, to bring curses on Israel. And Balaam says, fine, you know, here's my price. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, so he, he's willing to do that. Trouble is, he's dealing with the true God at this point, and when he goes to curse Israel, blessings come out of his mouth. And, and he can't pronounce curses. He, and he says, I'm sorry, I, I'd like to if I could, but I can't. He goes to talk, and blessings come out. And one of the blessings that come out is this prophecy. So, we have a prophecy given by a pagan astrologer, uh, that is used by other pagan astrologers to use pagan means, astrological means, to find the Christ story. It's a little bit funky, if you ask me. <laughs> and God does not like astrology. What's, what's the final thing that's very puzzling about this whole story is that the leaders, the Israelite, the religious leaders clearly don't have a clue as to what's going on. They don't have a clue. The people who are supposed to be on the inside, and this is what the Christmas story is all about. The people who are supposed to be on the inside find themselves on the outside, and the people who are on the outside find themselves on the inside. The, the, the religious leaders don't have a clue. They know where Christ is going to be born, but they're out of the loop on this one. They don't know that it's going on right now. And the only role they, they play in the story is to be used by a corrupt king to his own purposes. And the result is that a lot of kids got their lives lost because of it. The story is a classic turnaround on our expectations of what should have been. Now, let me draw two points out of this, this story for us here this morning. And the first one is just as I said. Uh, God 
God does not usually fit our religious expectations. God, I almost want to say, he doesn't behave himself. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't do what a God is supposed to do. He doesn't do what the religious people think he's supposed to do. He certainly doesn't fit into any of our religious boxes. I mean, if you're one of the leaders of Israel here, you're thinking this. My people have walked with God for eons and eons, and these pagans uh, from Persia have done nothing but resist God's purposes. Uh, uh, you know, God's on our side, God's not on their side. If God's going to tell anyone that he's coming into the world, he's going to tell us, he's not going to tell them. We are the holy people, those are the sinful people. We are the righteous, those are the unrighteous. We've got the revelation of God Almighty. They're dabbling in this astrological occult. If, if God's going to use anybody when he, when he brings the Messiah into the world, he'll use us, he's He's not going to use them. And if he's going to have a hero, it's going to be us. It's not going to be them. See, we know who God is. We, 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 we got our theology down. We got it tight. It works for us. Uh, we got God in this nice little box here. So we, we know what we're looking for. God is mighty and strong. You think, you really think, silly pagans that you are, that he'd be born in some, you know, dirty-filled manure manger. God's got royalty. You think he's going to be born to some unwed Jewish peasant? Give me a break. God's got a reputation to keep. You think he's going to throw a star up in the sky to lead some pagan astrologers to where, where Christ is being born? We know who God is. And, and he doesn't work like this. No, no, no. God's a holy God, a righteous God. And this is why. Because of their religious presuppositions about what holiness and righteousness was, because of that, they missed the Christ child being born, and they resisted Christ all of their life. Because, you see, they, they know the Messiah. They got their theology down. It works for them. They're satisfied with it. it. You know, they got it together, unlike all these pagans out there. And they know the Messiah. He'll be a law-keeping Messiah. But this guy, this Jesus, breaks the Sabbath to heal somebody. Well, we know God, and it's not that. We, 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 know, we know what the Messiah is. The Messiah is holy. He's not going to be hanging out with hookers on the street. But this guy hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors and the rest. He's offensive to our religious sensibility. We know God and it's not found over there. Oh, you know, see, the, the, the true God uh, keeps ceremonial, ceremonially, ceremonially pure, they would say. Uh, but this, this Messiah, he goes around, he embraces lepers for crying out loud, the most fundamental social taboo in our culture. We know what God is. He's pure, and this Jesus is not pure. Uh, so he, he, he can't be the Messiah. He can't be the true Messiah. We know that when the Messiah comes, he'll confirm our rightness. He'll agree with us, because we're on God's side. But this Jesus disagrees with, uh, disagrees with us at every turn. And when the Messiah comes, he'll work through the proper religious establishment. He'll go according to the nice religious authorities. He'll work through the leadership of Israel. But this Yahoo... He surrounds himself with a bunch of loser fishermen, tax collectors, and whatnot, and thinks he's going to change the world with that. Give us a break. We know what God is like. Oh, we got him right here in this box. Our theology is down pat, and Jesus doesn't fit it, so Jesus is not the true Messiah. And see, I think if you're looking at this story through traditional religious eyes, that's almost understandable. It's why the, the religious leaders have Jesus sitting right under their nose and don't know it, but these pagans will travel 1,200 miles following a little light in the sky to get there. Uh, see, they, they, they've got their theology down, it's down pat, and nothing that's going on here fits their religious presuppositions. This isn't the God they're looking for, the God of their rightness, the God of their self-security, the God that keeps them in power, the God that furthers their agenda. They knew that when the Messiah was going to come, he was going to liberate them from the oppressive rule of the Romans. But this Messiah gets himself, this so-called Messiah gets himself crucified on a cross. What kind of a Messiah is that? If you're looking at it through your traditional religious spectacles, you're going to miss the whole story. It doesn't look like a God thing at all. But I submit to you that if you look at it through different spectacles, with a different set of eyes, it's got God written all over it. Look at it through the eyes of a God who maybe isn't 
religiously proper, but who's got an outrageous love for human beings, and a God who's willing to go and die on the cross of Calvary. You look at this thing not through the eyes of religion, but through the eyes of love, and it's dripping with God. Every part about it has God, got, got God written all over it. You see, the, the reality is that God never wanted to be the God of a religion. He wants to be the God of the world, the lover of souls, the savior of human beings. He's not the God of, uh, he, just, he doesn't want to be just the God of, of uh, the Jews. He wants to be the God of the Jews, but also of the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. Uh, he wants to be the God of the religious leaders, but he's also the God of the Magi, amen? Uh, he's, he's, he don't, he's saying, don't think you can put me in your little box and make me into your private nationalistic deity. No, I, he's the God of the whole world. He's got a love that cannot be contained. It could not be higher. It could not be deeper. It could not be wider. This is the God, a, a God who has a passionate, uh, wild, like, love for every human being he's ever created. So he's the God of the Americans, but he's also the God of the Iraqis. He's the God of Greg Boyd. He's also the God of Saddam Hussein, though I don't think Saddam Hussein knows that just yet. He, he's the God of the whites, and he's the God of the blacks, and he's the God of the and he's the God of the Hmong, he's the God of the Chinese, he's the God of the Russians, he's the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords and the Savior of all who will believe. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And you cannot put him into our little box that fits nicely between your ears. He's a wild God. He seems to be willing to go to any extreme and any extent in order to win the world over to his love. You think that God wouldn't stoop so low as to put a star in the sky to draw some pagan astrologers over to him? Well, a God who's really in love with, with, with those astrologers, he just might do that. He's that wild. You think he's too strong to be born as a weak little baby? Well, you know, if his love is the important thing, not his strength, he just might do that. Don't write him off too quickly. You don't think, you think God maybe is too royal and too holy and too dignified to be born in a manure-filled barn? Well, a God who, who delights in getting involved in the manure of people's lives, he just might do that. You, know, you don't think God would, would, would become a man and hang out with some prostitutes? That's exactly what a God who loves prostitutes would do. And you don't think he'd get ceremonially unclean by embracing lepers? Well, a God who's more concerned with lepers than he is with ceremonial propriety, that's exactly what God would do. You know, you, you don't think God would, would, would surround himself with fishermen and tax collectors and, and, and bypass the religious system? Well, a God who wants to really make it clear that he loves ordinary people and can use ordinary people, that's exactly the kind of people he'd surround himself with. And you don't think uh, God would, would, would go to a cross and die a God-forsaken death, but see a God of, of, uh, of unimprovable, unsurpassable, unwavering love for humanity, that's precisely the kind of thing that God would do. And if you're looking at this through the eyes of love, it's got God written all over it. It drips with God. There's been, never been a God story told like this one. But this is not a God you can put into a box because his love cannot be contained. You can always underestimate his love, and we always do, but you can never overestimate it. He'll go places you never dreamed of for the sake of love. There's no depth that he will not sink in order to communicate his love to the world and win people over to it. He's a wild God. He bursts apart our religious expectations, which is why, and here's the second point of this story, why God uses the Magi. He's a God who offends religious sensibilities. So prepare to be offended. I want to read um, uh, Isaiah, uh, a passage from the book of Isaiah. To set this up, <clears throat> Isaiah says, The Lord says through Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, that's pretty high, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
Now, this passage is used to justify every contradiction in the world that someone wants to believe. But in the original context, it has a very specific application. The application is found in these verses, uh, verses uh, 4 through 5. God is confronting the self-serving, myopic perspective of many of the Jews who think that God is just their God, who think that they have got God all figured out, who really have become nationalistic and even today we might say racist in their thinking about God's work in the world. God's on our side, not theirs. And so here's what the Lord says. He says, Come all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He's inviting the nations here. He says, it's free, it's free, just come. Whoever wants to come, come. I have made him, he's talking about David and prophetically talking about the Davidic Messiah. I've made him a witness to the peoples. The word there is goyim, which means the heathen, the non-Jews. My Messiah shall be a witness to all the goyim. A leader and a commander of the goyim. Surely you will, talking to Israel now, you will summons nations. You will call nations. You will be a magnet to nations. You will woo nations you know not. And nations that do not know you will hasten to you. They're going to come running to you. And then the Lord says several verses later, he says, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord, let no one ever say this, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Don't think that thought, the Lord is saying. What God is really saying here is that he is a free-for-all God. We use that term free-for-all when kids are playing and there's no rules and it's all helter-skelter and you can't figure out what's going on. Free-for-all! Well, God is in a real sense a free-for-all God. What he's got is free and he intends it to be for all. And what he's doing is he's using this free-for-all love, this universal perspective that he has to confront the Israelites who had lost this perspective. Uh, the Jews were a chosen people in the Old Testament. God took many centuries to raise them up as a unique, distinct people. He gave them a separate law, separate customs. He protected them. In many senses, he favored them. In times of conflict, he favored them. Uh, he had blessings on them. They had unique privileges as a people of God. They were chosen. They were elect. All that is true. But what we often forget and what they forgot was that, was that, that election, that chosenness, wasn't just for them. Rather, God wanted them to be unique so that they could reach the world. God always operates from the, uh, from the small to the big. And he wanted to operate from this little nation, like a mustard seed, uh, to grow the whole world, or a little leaven that would leaven the whole lump. He wanted to use this little nation, this despised people, these former slaves, to raise them up, teach them his ways, so that they would in turn serve the whole world, bring the whole world to themselves, summons the whole world, be a magnet uh, to, uh, of the world to lead people to the true God. This is why God took so much time and pain to plant them in that, in that area we call the promised land. Because most major trade routes of the ancient world ran through there. And so God's doing a heart transplant for humanity. Wants to uh, refine this one group of people, plant them in the main heart artery of, of the ancient world so they can start to pump righteous blood throughout the whole world, influence the world. And the vision, you find it in Isaiah in a number of places, was that all the nations would come around Zion and, and they would all be blessed. They'd all know the one true God. Israel was a blessed people, a privileged people, a unique people. But the purpose of their privilege and the purpose of their calling was not just for themselves, it was to reach the world. God's always had a universal love for human beings. That didn't just start in the New Testament. That's always been God's heart. First prophecy ever given to Abraham about the nation of Israel was, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. 
God's always had his heart on the whole world. Israel was to be the means by which he reached the whole world. But among many in Israel, especially among the leadership, they lost that perspective and they got what some call a religious spirit. And they began to interpret their, their chosenness not as a chosenness to do a vocation, to serve the world, to minister to the world, but they began to interpret their chosenness as sort of an elitist thing. We are the chosen people of God. And when they start to think that way, they start to look down on the world they're supposed to be serving. We are the righteous people, unlike them. We are the holy people, unlike them. We have known the true God, unlike them. And, 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 and they begin to feed off of the blessings that they have from God. They, they lose a hunger for the purpose that God raised them up because they're getting too satisfied on their own religiosity. It's working for them. They like being the chosen people of God, and, and so they, they, they become sort of fat cats sitting on some religious sasses. They look down on the very world they're supposed to be. That came up pretty good. Fat cats sitting on religious sass. Yes, that, that, that describes it pretty well. They're getting stuffed with their own, their own knowledge and truth, or at least what they think is their own knowledge and truth, and no longer are they servants to the world. They got satisfied and stopped being hungry. They actually became not only outside the purposes of God, but in the ministry of Jesus, enemies of the purpose of God. How did they miss this? How did the religious leaders miss this? And how did the Magi get it? Well, the religious leaders missed it because they weren't hungry for it. They weren't hungry for this kind of God. They were hungry for a God who would confirm their own theological correctness, who would further their own political and religious ideologies, who would make them feel just a little bit better about themselves. That's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for this kind of God. The Magi, well, they were screwed up dudes for sure. I mean, they're dabbling in the occult here, but they obviously had a hunger. They had a hunger. You don't travel 1,200 miles in search of you know not what, unless you're hungry for something. You don't leave your royal status and your comfort and lifestyle to go two years out into a desert there and back unless you're really hungry. They were hungry. And what God is most hungry for in this world are people who are genuinely hungry for him and hungry for what he is hungry for. There is no depth to which God will not sink to meet a person who's hungry. Here these astrologers are. They got a genuine hunger in their heart, uh, a longing in their heart. They look up at the sky a lot, study the stars. So God says, all right, if that's where you're looking, then I'll, I'll meet you where you're at. He puts a star in the sky or maybe uses a, a stellar convergence that was already going to be there. And he uses that, those astrological means, to bring them to the Christ child. He's a God of outrageous love who will go to any extent to meet a hungry person in the area of their hunger. And the question we've got to ask ourselves honestly is this. Are we like the Magi, who maybe are somewhat screwed up in our heads, I'm sure all of us are to some degree, but we've got a hunger, and we'll follow a star wherever it leads. Are we, do we have the hunger of the Magi, or are we more like the religious leaders of Israel, where we know what we know, and it works for us, are we people who have got a religion that is just nice in our life? It makes us feel comfortable. It makes us feel secure. It works for us. Uh, it's part of our wonderful lives. And especially around Christmas, it just makes us all the more sweet and quaint and, 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 and comfortable. Is that where we're at? Have we lost the hunger of the Magi? That's searching for God wherever God can be found. And are we willing to set aside some of our own religious preconceptions to follow that star? Because God might just be bigger than our own brain. See, here's the danger. The danger is also the blessing. 
The church is blessed. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and have surrendered your life to him, you are part of what the Bible calls the chosen people. You are one of the elect. You're the body of Christ. You're the vehicle of God's presence in this world. Uh, we've been blessed in ways that the, the Israelites never dreamed of being blessed. I mean, we've been given the Holy Spirit. We, we've been given the New Testament. We've got a revelation of God's, of the true God's love in the person of Jesus Christ. We've been filled with the power of God and the life of God and the love of God and the peace of God. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We are a blessed people. And God wants us to enjoy that blessing, to walk in that blessing, to cash in on that blessing. The danger is that we stop with that. Whoa, are we blessed? And we become like the ancient, like many of the ancient Israelites were. Now we turn this into, we think it's just about us. That we're the special people. We're the holy people, unlike them. We're the righteous people, unlike them. We've got the truth, unlike them. And like the ancient Israelites, like many of the ancient Israelites, we begin to look at the world more in terms of how we disagree with it rather than in terms of the hunger that, that we're supposed to be ministering to. And instead of being lovers of the world, we become judges of the world. Instead of seeking to wash the feet of the world, we stand over the world and we begin to have a disdain on the world and we get angry at the world and some areas call it, declare war on special people groups, whether it's the ACLU or the abortionist or whatever, and we end up trying to have an angry religiosity that will control the world rather than following the Christ who lays down his life for his enemy. We are a chosen people, but we're not chosen to be self-righteous. We're not chosen to be a bless me club. We're not chosen to get a religious buzz on Sunday morning club. We're not chosen to be the, 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 the people who stand over the world kind of a club. We're not chosen to be the uh, don't we have all the truth uh, as opposed to them kind of a club. We're called to be the group who follows Jesus Christ, who's a priest to the entire world, who's willing to lay down our life for our enemies, who's willing to walk the feet of prostitutes who's willing to follow the star wherever the star might lead we're we are called here's how we're chosen it's a vocation it's not just a privilege there's a lot of privileges that go with it but it's a vocation when you sign up for this you don't sign up for a religious buzz once or twice a week you sign up for a job and the job is to do to be the body of christ here in this world we are called to be rescued astrologers who have a hunger for Christ and are following the light of God, however means, whatever means he uses, in order to find where Christ is hanging out. That's what we're called to do. And then we're called to, like the Magi, offer a sacrifice in worship to Christ and in service to the kingdom. You know, the, the, the sacrifice that they gave to Christ, the family probably lived off of that for the next couple of years. It furthers the work of the kingdom. We're called to follow that star and to, as an act of worship and in service to the kingdom, sacrifice of our life. We're called to stay hungry and keep our eyes focused on the star. And if you stay hungry and are desperate for God like the air we breathe, and keep your eyes focused on that star, the light of God's leading, he will lead you into places you never dreamed of going. He might just lead you out of your royal palace in Persia across the barren desert into a dirty barn because this God, this Christ, hangs out in the dirty barns of people's lives. You keep your eyes fixed on that star and you stay hungry, genuinely hungry. He'll move you outside of yourself and you'll discover the joy of, of, of uh, being set free from self-centered living. You'll, follow, you'll find the joy of living in love. You, you keep hungry and follow that star. And this God might lead you out of the high society of religious propriety and you might find yourself ministering to people that, that society ignores and religious leaders disdain because they're the lepers of the world. Uh, you keep your eyes fixed on this star and you stay hungry. 
And you might find yourself touching the untouchables and, and hanging out with the lepers of the world and the prostitutes of the world and maybe spending more time with those marginalized people more than you do Christian fellowship because this is where God's working in order to bring them unto himself. You keep hungry. You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And, and, and you may find yourself uh, sacrificing as an act of worship and sacrificing in service to the kingdom. Uh, people who are homeless that you never thought about before. People who are naked that you never thought about before. People who are hungry that you never thought about before. People who are oppressed by a racialized society when you haven't before given that a, a, a second thought. People who are, who are on the losing sen- sen- uh, end of injustice when you didn't even know there was any injustice. You follow that star and you stay hungry and God's going to lead you into places you never dreamed about. You might start caring about Cambodians who don't get enough medical attention and asking the question, how can I scribe worth to Jesus Christ and the value of the kingdom by sacrificing for them? You might find yourself caring about Russians or caring about Iraqians or caring about Haitians who can't get an education. You might find yourself caring about, God might give you a burden as you stay hungry and follow that star for what inner city youth are doing on a Friday night because they're all getting in trouble right now. And you might find yourself having a burden for the drug addicts and, and for the street people and, and for the alcoholics and, and for the, the scared teenager who's pregnant and doesn't know where to turn. You stay hungry and follow that star and your God's going to be leading to places you wouldn't believe. But it will always be outside of your comfort zone. It will always be outside of religious propriety. This is a wild God. You've got to know that going into it. He'll use any means possible. You've got to know that going into it. You might find yourself with some unusual people in unusual places making unusual sacrifices. But that, my friends, is what we're called to do. That is the kingdom of God. It may not be convenient. It may not always be, uh, you know, uh, fitting religious expectations. But of course it's not convenient. If it was convenient, it wouldn't be sacrifice. (laughs) You see, it's a sacrifice because it's not convenient. You keep, stay hungry and follow that star and you might find yourself walking side by side by some pagan astrologer. And what are you going to do about that? Think about it. Do you, do you, will you let God be that wild uh, where he can call a magi if he wants to? You might find yourself partnering pe- with people like that. You know, our church, uh, one of our central issues is to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ by feeding the hungry and giving ho- providing homes for the homeless. We're not very good at that right now, I've got to be honest with you, but, but we're working towards it. And um, one of the groups we partner with is a group that specializes just in providing homes for the homeless and feeding the hungry. Now, it's a left-wing group, if you know what those terms mean. And uh, I, I increasingly don't like those terms, but they're a left-wing group. It's a very diverse group. They've got a lot of different uh, varieties of lifestyles that are a part of this group, a lot of different religions that are part of this group. There's some Buddhists and Muslims that are on this group. And, and we partner with them uh, to the extent that we want to see people put in homes and, and the hungry fed. And it's been brought to my attention twice now. Someone has said, well, are, are you sure that's what, is that a wise thing to do? Because... Well, you know, this might taint your, your reputation as an evangelical church. And other evangelical churches may look at this and, and, and it could, they could even suspect that you're actually condoning uh, those lifestyles and condoning those other religions uh, by partnering with them uh, for this cause. My response this morning would be this. You know, God wasn't condoning astrology when he used it uh, to bring the astrologers over to where Christ was. He just, his love for astrologers trumped his concern about, about having his reputation tainted by using astrology as a means to get the work done. There are some things that trump religious propriety. Feeding people's one, giving people homes is another. And if, if partnering with you will feed one more kid on this planet, I don't care if you're a transvestite dressed up in drag, I will consider it an honor to hold your hand to get that kid fed. Amen? Okay, now, some in the religious spirit are, are, are you know, like, 
Did he just say that? I think it's a religious spirit that, you know what, the, 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 homeless, the, the homeless kid, uh, the homeless family, uh, they don't care whether you're straight or transvestite or gay or Buddhist or Christian, they need a home. And the hungry person doesn't care whether you're Calvinist or Arminian or Baptist or Pentecostal, uh, they're hungry. The food doesn't care either. Uh, what, what, what constitutes the work of God is when there are people who are willing to say, you know what, I will, I will go to any length, I'll cross any desert to follow that star uh, because this is where Christ is hanging out. It may not be where the religious people think he's hanging out. You know what, and if the religious people want to judge you, let them judge you. It's a sign that you're doing something right as far as I'm concerned. Judge away, have at it. You know, uh, fine. I, I, we're not called, to, the one reputation we're called to have is not that we are evangelical, not that we're good Baptists, not that we, you know, have all the right orthodox doctrines. The one reputation we're called to have is this. We're outrageous lovers. By this you will know, Jesus says, that you're my disciples, because you love one another, amen? John 13, 35. It's that outrageous love that's willing to bust every box that's out there, to tear down every wall that's out there. You know, we're supposed to be loving and serving and washing the feet of the transvestite. What possible jaded thinking could get you to think that you shouldn't partner with them to see a kid fed? Think about this. Do you see how jaded and, and even diabolical that religious mindset is? Well, we're just going to stay over here in our own little holy club, and we're righteous, and you're not, and we're correct, and you're not, and we're saved, and you're not, and you're, you know, you're condoning what they're doing. No, you just pursue love at all costs. Maybe someone's here saying, wait, wait a minute, you're saying Christ is hanging out in the barns and hanging out with the prostitutes and hanging out with the hungry. I thought, isn't Christ here? Isn't Christ in the church? Isn't that why we come to church? It's the house of God. And you know what? There is this, a special kind of presence that is with the people of God when we come together. There was a special presence for Israel. God was uniquely present in Israel. They were here to be his priests. There was a special presence there. But see, what Israel was, was not just the club that got blessed by God. They were supposed to be the club that shared that blessing with others, that announced the free for all God. They, the true Israel was the Israel that was serving the world. And when they stopped doing that, they stopped being the true Israel. And so it is with the church, the body of Christ. The body of Christ, there's a unique presence here, a unique joy, a dimension, a blessing. I mean, God loves to bless his people. Yes, he blesses the body of Christ. But what is the body of Christ? Well, Look at what the body of Christ did when he was incarnated. The body of Christ is what Christ does. Uh, it's doing things. It's changing the world. It's sacrificing to further the kingdom. It's radical star chasers who are willing to leave the comforts of Persia and cross the desert to go to a, a barn and visit a Christ child. So Christ is present here in a unique way insofar as we, in fact, are the radical people of God. The question I leave us with here this morning is this, and just be honest with yourself and with God. There's no point in kidding around. Uh, are you hungry like the Magi, or are you satisfied? Are you just satisfied with your religion? Because it's working for you, and your life is pretty nice, and it keeps your life together, and it, it relieves you of guilt and gives you something to do on a Sunday morning, and why should you care about other people's mess? Are we, are we sitting on our comfortable, what-we-know-about-God mindset, or do we still have that radical abandon of these pagan magi who are willing to follow the star at all costs? There are some people here that are hungry and not religious. And there are some people here that are religious but not hungry. And I want to close with a prayer for both. Would you close your eyes and pray? If you're here this morning and, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe 
you've always thought you were excluded because of your past, the things that you've done, the things that have gone on. And I just want you to remember the verse from Isaiah. I'd never say that you're excluded. If you will receive it, you are included. And what it's about is opening your life and heart to Jesus Christ. Really doing it. I wasn't going to ask for this, but there's two hands that are already up. And so I'm going to say, if you want to pray that prayer, would you raise your hands? Wait, would you just raise your hand very high, and we're going to pray with you that prayer. Anybody else? Keep praying, uh, other people. Raise your hand if this morning you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Several have already done that. Amen, amen. Anybody else? Just raise your hand. And it, it, it may be that you have thought you were unforgivable. I'm here to tell you that you're not. Maybe that you don't think you're going to be good at doing the religious life. Amen, over there. But it's not about that. It's about are you willing to surrender your life to Christ and follow that star? This is, this is what uh, makes you part of the thing that God's doing in the world today. I want to pray for those who raise their hand, and then I want to pray for religious folk who maybe have lost their hunger. Those who raise your hand, pray this prayer with me, and we'll all join with you together. It's very simple, but make it from your heart. It's just a first step towards Christ. Heavenly Father, I confess that I am a sinner in need of your grace. I have not lived according to your ways but I want to. I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive me, to make me new, to live within me, to turn me from my sin and help me be a radical star chaser for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Those who raise their hand, I, I want to praise God for you. Amen. It's wonderful. I, 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 I wasn't, I, I wasn't going to do that. And then I, there's two different people raised their hands. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm supposed to do that. Um, I want, those who raise their hand, I want to encourage you to come up here to my right and uh, your left. And this, this man here would love to explain to you what just happened and give you some steps on, on walking uh, uh, with, with Jesus Christ. And now I want to close with this prayer. Would you stand? Don't leave. I want to close with this prayer for the religious who have lost their hunger. And the majority in this room are more in line with that prayer than the, the one we just prayed. So, Father, we now pray in Jesus' name that, God, you make us hungry. Make us hungry. God, we, uh, we, it's so easy for us in our fallen nature to get satisfied, fat and sassy with our religiosity and to just sit on what we think we know and, and use it as a means of furthering our, the improvement of our own life and our own convenience. God, shake us up. We want you to shake us up. Make us hungry. We want you to make us hungry, Lord God. Turn us upside down. We want you to turn us upside down. Make us bold. We want you to make us bold. Make us fearless, Lord. We want you to make us fearless. Give us the radicalness to leave, uh, God, the, the, the culture that we're a part of with all of its self-absorbed, narcissistic and materialistic mindset. And to be willing to step out radically and, and, and follow that star wherever it may lead and sacrifice for the purpose of the kingdom. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you'd open up our eyes to all the needs that are around us right now. Uh, God, we, we, it's to our advantage, our flesh advantage, not to see it, 
but they're all around, Lord God. And I pray as we go out of this place, our eyes will be opened. And, and, and in fact, we will be in tune with your spirit, following that light, following that star, wherever it may lead. God, even out in the gathering area, so many needs and opportunities are out there, Lord God. I pray you'd put it on people's hearts, draw their attention, that we can partner together, God, to see this world change for Jesus Christ. Partner together to see your love demonstrated in the prisons and, and in the homeless shelters, God. Partner together to see this world begin to see the light of your glory. That's why, Lord God, you've made us your priests, your ministers. Help us to walk it in faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time, amen. Go forth in the radicalness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be a star chaser. <laughs>